0: I don't know, honestly I think I'm much more on the avoidant on, on the avoidant side of things, but that disorganized one like that push pull and the back and forth and the hot and cold, it's it's like wow, like you can see that in so many places in so many relationships. It makes perfect sense. Right.
1: I wasn't going to say it, but I thought so, too. I was oh, like, oh, yeah, I can for sure. <laughs> <laughs> if you're happy with the same old ways of dating,
0: if you enjoy sucking at communication,
1: and you have no desire to improve your romantic life, then our podcast might not be for you.
0: But if you want some out-of-the-box ideas to deepen your current relationships, broaden your sexual horizons, develop a better understanding of yourself, or
1: learn more about non-monogamy, then you've come to the right place. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. And this is the Multi Amory Podcast. On this episode of the Multiamory Podcast, we're speaking with counselor and sexuality educator, Ruby Bowie Johnson. We're going to tackle a big topic that has been requested many, many times, which is managing mental health and relationships, and also the question of how one's mental health interacts with non-monogamy. So, Ruby, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you for having me again.
1: Yeah, so to start out, can we first just ask a little bit about What inspired you to start working in the mental health field and sexuality education, too?
2: Oh, um, I've been a therapist since 2002. So this is year 17. I actually did not plan to get into the mental health field. It happened when I got my master's in social work. The main jobs were in the mental health field. I was actually wanting to do community organizing. Um, which I'm doing now, actually. Yeah. And so I kind of fell into it and I was told I'm good at it. so that's been (laughs) what I've been doing the entire time. And since I I used to work in psychiatric hospitals and residential treatment facilities, and I encountered people in open relationships often. Um, At that time, I did not know what was going on, but that set the stage for me to start getting into the sexuality field and just about, you know, sexual health and how people can be safe in their sexual practices and how comprehensive sexual health is something that's beyond that. It's about pleasure consent. And so that happened about six years ago. Wow.
1: That's, that's really interesting that like, cause I feel like, you know, if you went into that and started working with people with mental health issues and then from there just seeing oh there's a need for this and that's what grew into it rather than like oh you know i had this hobby of being kinky and over here i had this job (laughs) and so i'm just gonna mix the two that's really cool that that you really sought out to to educate yourself and then educate others in that
2: yes yes and that's always something that's very important is to be a consistent and constant life learner um Mm. I believe that if I stop learning, I stop being creative and I stop being able to do what I love to do. So and the the I've discovered that kink was a word six years ago. I was just doing it since I was 17. No. <laughs> Got
1: it. Yeah.
0: So I discovered kink. <laughs> oh, <Now, laughs>
2: this is what this is. Oh, this is what I've been doing. That's actually more than six, like 10 years ago.
1: Right. So this, yeah. Oh, I love that. Years. That's great.
0: How So how long has it been for you that in your practice you've been open about, you know, specializing in working with clients who are non-monogamous or kinky or in that field in some way?
2: It's been about five to six years. Um, I've been working exclusively, mostly exclusive with individuals who are non-monogamous and kinky. Um, I discovered that people actually want to know if you're doing this theoretically or in practice so I started to be Mm. more open with the podcast like your Mm. podcast that that I was on a couple of years ago and those particular um, ways of communicating with people and so they discovered that I also work with people in my private practice with non-monogamy
0: yeah Yeah,
1: that's awesome yeah
0: that that's interesting because You know, in my own work with clients, that has been a recurring theme that I've heard that, um, you know, either people go out and find a therapist or a counselor who doesn't know anything about kink or non-monogamy and they have a really negative experience or they find someone who lists themselves as poly-friendly or kink-friendly and the person is like, yeah, it was it was fine, but this person had never actually been in any of these kink situations or in any of these non-monogamous situations. And so as far as actually being able to relate or, uh, you know, reflect any kind of actual practical knowledge that was kind of non-existent. And so it does seem, at least that's what I'm saying, that people do really appreciate knowing that at least their therapist or their counselor or someone who's guiding them Um, I guess it has had some kind of like on the ground. They get it (laughs) on a certain level, even if they're not no longer non-monogamous or kinky or whatever. That there's some kind of deep knowing that's there. That's not just um, you know, not just I took a weekend workshop as a therapist about polyamory or whatever. Exactly,
2: and you know, it's it's a whole new language. It's a whole new culture. You know, and the culture itself is something that unless unless you are entrenched within it, unless you are really in it and understand it it's difficult to give that to another client because they'll mm. spend their time educating you. You know, yes. I can a client a client can come to me and say, you know, I was in this triad and then it turned in, into a V and, you know, and now the V is no longer working and we want to be polyfidelitists and having that those two sentences, they can spend <laughs> an entire session educating their therapist on what that means. Right. right. And there's you your know, copay yeah. out the window.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> or, or if you don't take insurance, you know, that's mm. a whole lot of money out the window. Exactly. Right?
0: Exactly. You know,
2: yeah. And so yeah. I make sure that my clients actually are getting what they're needing um, by communicating to them. Okay, you can come in to me, come in to see me and you don't have to give me two hours of, you know,
0: prep.
1: Right.
2: For yeah. able to help.
0: Yes. Yeah, 100%. So I want to dive into the topic at hand. It's a very broad topic, it's definitely impossible to cover in one episode. This will probably be, you know, in the future of our podcast, we'll probably end up doing multiple episodes on the topic of mental health. And because it's so broad, that's why I specifically reached out to our patron community, our private patron group. And I just posed the question, you know, what are your most important questions? What are the things you wonder about? What are the things you worry about when it comes to mental health and relationships? And we got so many responses on that thread. And in reading through all of these responses, there were certainly some recurring themes that emerged. So I'm going to dive into these themes kind of one by one, and I can read you some of the specific questions and comments that we got from our listeners. And it's okay if it's a little organic and we kind of go all over the place, but um, I thought that that's kind of where we can begin. So sure. one, of the, um, one of the themes that came out, and I kind of want to just knock this out, Uh, right away, (laughs) Um, is that something that a lot of people have heard or something that I've even seen get tossed around even in fairly non-monogamous positive circles is this sentiment that people who have mental health issues or people who are neurodivergent in some way are inherently going to find non-monogamous relationships more difficult. So I'm going to read you a specific comment from one of our listeners. They say, I feel like I've heard before that attempting non-monogamy is not a great idea if you're suffering from one or more mental illnesses. And that's something that is stuck in my brain while trying to navigate this lifestyle for myself. Could you please speak to that and maybe affirm those of us suffering that are making a go of this?
2: Oh, absolutely. And that is a huge myth. That's actually a very sad myth. Like with any relationship, I mean... Most of us at some level experience anxiety, sadness, et cetera, and that does not say that we are inappropriate or ill-equipped to be within a relationship. I think with anyone who has um, any mental difference, and that's the word I like to use, are, you know, differences versus, you know, the pathological, mm. you know, disease or illness. I like to use differences for any one of us who have emotional or mental differences. I think it's important to recognize that we can have healthy, loving relationships. And the same way that we take care of our hygiene, you know, um, it's the same way that we would take care of our mental well-being is as long as we're communicating and we have people around us who actually see our worth regardless of we can have successful relationships. Mm. So yes, and now the reason I'm saying we is because I have I have depression, you know, mm. and I take medication and so and I have many relationships. <laughs> so <laughs> you know, I'm 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 not only speaking from my years of practice, I'm also speaking personally that is absolutely possible to have loving relationships many loving relationships and your mental well-being does not have to deter that at all right
0: yeah it definitely does kind of beg the question of um at least the image that comes to mind for me is well if we kind of start hacking away at like well if you have this particular mental difference or mental illness or whatever, then you're not cut out for non-monogamy that then it starts to become like, well, how perfectly, quote unquote, perfectly mentally healthy do you have to be to be able to be in relationship? Because I feel like none of us fit that bill, honestly, at the end of the day. Right,
2: Right. exactly. And um, I agree wholeheartedly with that. Um, And the reason that that's important to understand is that it doesn't create that um big you or you know that false dichotomy of well unwell or mm. you know that us them type of mentality mm. that separateness and when we want connection within polyamorous relationships because that's what we're about is connection and intimacy and if we have that barrier in between us based upon something that is not true how sad mm. is that mm. you know
1: yeah I mean, I feel like this is totally anecdotal and not scientific at all, but I feel like just from my experience talking with people, I think like, for example, autism seems to be quite highly represented amongst poly communities that I know, just as an example of how, like to kind of counter this idea that someone who's mentally, you know, who's mentally different or neurodivergent or whatever term we want to use, like that they wouldn't be cut out for it. I don't know if you've experienced that at all, but I just feel like anecdotally, I've noticed that.
2: Yeah, you know, um, you know, cognitive differences as well, you know, persons who are on the autism spectrum, um, you know, I do find in practice that there are individuals, I don't want to say overrepresented, um, but I do encounter many people whom are autistic who want to have relationships, you know, and looking at the various what i work with those clients typically is around identifying those particular cues socially verbally mm-hmm. that something is going on and something is happening within a relationship because it, there's a lot of concrete thinking um but that does not say hey you cannot have a relationship um that is that is a misnomer also
1: mm-hmm. Um, So now I want to pivot a little bit to another topic that came up quite a bit. And this is about and and this is a big one, I think, particularly because often people have multiple partners uh, and it's how to care for a partner's mental health. And so a couple examples of this is one is the question how do I make sure my partner with depression slash mental health issue is okay while at the same time maintaining my own mental well-being? And another one, like how do I avoid burnout after caring for a partner or multiple partners who are in crisis because of that?
2: That is a fantastic question. I love that. And that's what I spend a lot of time doing is teaching people how to be supportive and one of the things that I tend to emphasize is that there's no fixing here. Um, mm-hmm. recognizing between you and your partner, what your role is as a support person and having a shared meaning of what supportive means and asking that partner, you know, how can I best support you? Those are some important questions. Um, because when we take it on ourselves and become someone's, you know, nurse or doctor, that's where that emotional labor becomes very overwhelming and it can definitely lead to burnout and it can push you away from an individual. And I think it's important that your partner make sure they have a therapist (laughs) of their Mm -hmm. own and not make you their therapist, you know, um, and make sure that your partner is taking ownership for their well-being. And it's like with with anything, you know, with diet, with, you know, with hypertension, with diabetes, it's, it's a personal thing to take care of. And when you go to support, you know, support is being that extra set of eyes and ears, because sometimes you may not even be able to see when you're in an episode or something is going mm-hmm. on and happening. But also for the support person to have their own support. I I recommend that there's like family members um, that they can go to support groups or et cetera. And I believe in treating the entire system, you know, the entire polycule coming up with, you know, ways to communicate with, with communication boards or ways to communicate it via text. You know, we have a Google calendar for everything. Mm-hmm. Why yeah. not have a a a mental well being calendar, you know if i'm feeling this way, you know, send me a text and a cue that this is a day not to not to bother me or do some level of communication, and I think the responsibility falls on both people,
1: yeah, that's fantastic, everyone. and I'm just so I'm trying to think through like what are when these discussions come up, what are some of the responses to that, and I feel like one that comes up a lot is. Sort of this response of, but my partner can't take care of themselves.
2: Mm. Well, that, that's, a, that's either that's your perception, that person's perception that the partner can't take care of themselves or is that that's part of the stigma. Mm. Um, and that stigma that's attached with people who have um, mental or cognitive differences is that they are incapable of taking care of themselves. And they put them in this this helpless position when actually there's a lot of strength and resilience that is a muscle with people who have mental differences because they've had to manage it for a lot of years. And so for the support to trust that they can take care of themselves is something that will also free them up from so much emotional labor because it could be they're putting it on themselves.
1: Oh that's beautiful and and i I feel like very empowering for the person with the cognitive differences too, to know that oh my partner right. also trusts me to take care of myself
2: right exactly wow yeah. and yeah. and to make sure that person tells them i I'm with you because I love you, and i don't need if, if I wanted a you know a nurse or if I wanted somebody to help me, I would yeah. hire them but you're my, you know, you're, you're my, you're my lover. You're my friend, you're mm-hmm. my whatever. And that's the role I have you in, in my life, not that.
0: Right. And so
2: that's important also.
0: Yeah. I really want to highlight and I appreciate you putting the emphasis on if you're in a support role, also making sure that you're getting your own support as well. I think yes. that something that I see happen so often is And again, this is even in a monogamous relationship or non-monogamous or whatever, but whenever you have the dyad, like the two people, that there can be the person who's going through a crisis or going through a challenge, leaning on their partner for support, and then the person who's supporting gets so burnt out and exhausted that then they come right back to that partner in crisis being like, I need you to listen and support me and how difficult it is to support you right now. And it can become kind of like, I see it becoming like like passing the suffering back and forth to each right, other right you know and just kind right. of exhausting the collective resources even in the dyad you know which i think is something right. that, that seems as important to avoid right and and i agree with you i agree with you with that and the beauty
2: around being in polyamorous relationships or a non-monogamous relationships is that you have you can have not necessarily all the time but you you can have those other people who are in caring positions You know, not necessarily supportive, but caring positions that you can talk to and say, "Okay, this is my struggle. This is what's going on. I feel powerless. I feel this. I feel overwhelmed. I don't feel they're doing what they need to do and have someone on the outside to talk to. That's not necessarily so up close and personal where they can't Mm -hmm. see that there's a possible solution here. And that's what Mm -hmm. it's important Sometimes you just want to vent. Sometimes you just want to let it out and it's okay to want to vent. It's better to get it out than hold it in. And then that resentment comes and then you really don't want to be around mm. that person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's so healthy. It's so healthy to have your own support system for your own mental well-being, you know, because you can get physiologically exhausted and that impacts how you emotionally respond. You become more volatile, more irritable. And then that triggers the person who has the mental differences. And because there's already probably some issues going on with self esteem, you see how that viciousness. Moves? Yeah,
1: it cycles back and around like that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: You know, yeah. that energy goes through, you know, and that's with any good systems theory. Any therapist understands, you know, how those systems and those feedback loops can impact it and you know you can come in and disrupt it that's important how are you disrupting that feedback loop so everybody can see what's going on and that's a big part of my job in the office is to disrupt
1: okay round two name something that's not boring
0: a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh
1: oh sorry we were looking for chumba Casino.
0: Yeah, one hundred percent. And I, a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. I I want to also ask about you. You talked about you know how you believe in treating the whole system or the whole polycule, and again, kind of creating the systems that allow for that feedback loop to not be happening. Are do you have examples right. of stuff that you've seen of you know kind of effective strategies that entire polycules have been able to take on to kind of be able to avoid that daisy chain or that like really negative domino effect.
2: Well, one of the things that tends to happen when you break it down and you do a lovely genogram on the board. I have a whiteboard and I love my whiteboard, <laughs> which is <laughs> I, I break it down with all of the members of the polycule and I see how they're spinning. And that's usually what I point out is a good strategy is to see how everyone is spinning around the person who is not doing well at any given moment. And mm. that when the, when the system is spinning around that one person, everyone kind of loses themselves. So it's mm. kind of like that person is in the middle and everyone is going around taking care of that person. So mo- removing that person out of the middle of it and letting them be their own entity and you are not necessarily spin around them is a huge piece of the disruption Because if they become the focus, then what about all of the rest of your relationships and what you're doing in your life if that person is the center of everything? Now, it does come to time when a system has to, or family members, when it's getting into a place that is very precarious where you may need to rally around someone and help them. But that's any someone.
0: Any mm -hmm. someone
2: could, could need a rally, you know, around and it's recognizing how you can get caught up in, within the illness itself or within what's going on itself. You can get caught up. And then when everyone is caught up in it, you can't really help if all of this is making sense. You know what yeah, I
0: mean? Yeah. I imagine that that involves a lot of needing to empower the other people in the polycule to have good boundaries and a good sense of like their own capacity and expectations. At least that's what I would guess.
2: Boundaries is a fantastic word. I love that. Yeah, and that's definitely it because it's real easy to become enmeshed in polyamory to where you don't know where you end and someone else begins because it is set up around so much communication and so much so much intimacy that it can sometimes get to a point when it's not balanced, it becomes very detrimental. And so um, a good one, Bohinian is a Bohinian theory um, that talks about differentiation of self, which mm. is a, a therapeutic approach when you start to say, okay, I'm a member of this polycule or I'm a member of this relationship, but I'm also my own individual with my own boundaries, with my own identity, you know, I'm more than my partner's lover or I'm more than their support or I'm more than their caregiver. I'm actually my own person. And that's another way to stay healthy. If each person is able to recognize their, their individual selves and take care of those, and eventually, in addition to being supportive, that also helps with the polycule staying healthy. You know, right. there's the larger, there's a larger ecosystem of the polycule. And then there's your little individual ecosystem of self. And mm. when both of those are balanced, that's when things are, are maintained very healthy.
1: Mm. Right.
0: That makes sense.
1: Yeah. So kind of um, segueing from that a little bit into the next topic that came up quite a bit is this question of I guess it has to do with boundaries, like you were talking about, but kind of trying to evaluate when it's too much. So, some examples here is what to do, for example, when your partner or a metamor potentially is not acknowledging or addressing their own mental health um, or their own mental Mm -hmm. differences. And another Mm -hmm. example is when you when you find yourself in a situation where you feel like you need to make the decision to quote, abandon them to preserve your own mental health and how, yeah. you know, and p- some people shared about how they struggle with that debate. Others saying I had to make that choice years ago. I still feel bad about it, but it was the right choice for me. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's such a, gosh, it's so, such an emotionally charged topic, you know, that's such a hard mm-hmm. thing. Um, but I was wondering what, what your experience has been, um, working with people in, in those sorts of questions.
2: Oh wow. So big. Yeah. Um I'm trying to put my thoughts together on <laughs> it because I've seen it with personality disorders. I've seen it with um people who have untreated um bipolar disorder or some people who have, you know, untreated depression, anxiety, um individuals who have um substance abuse. Yeah. And So that is such a huge one and when one gets into the position of their I uh, guess what's the word i'm looking for they're wanting that person to stay well more than that person wants to stay well mm-hmm. that's a huge red a huge red flag mm-hmm. when you're scheduling the the doctor's appointments or you're going to pull them out of the bar or, you know, you're, you know, that individual is, has an episode to where they're very erratic and they're, you know, volatile and it becomes abusive and all of these things that are huge red light
1: indicators
2: that there is an unmanageable state that is constant within a relationship you have to recognize within yourself when you have reached your limitations, Mm -hmm. not to say that you're abandoning that person, but that person has abandoned themselves and you, you, you can't be their life preserver. You know, Mm. they have to actually put it on themselves and pull themselves up. And it, it can be a, I can't be with you right now because you're not taking care of yourself. And it's starting to make me, not well, I'm I'm feeling exhausted and this has been going on for two months and I don't know what to do other than to give myself space so that I can recover. Mm. Because this is a this is a, a system, this is a family thing. And when someone is not taking care of themselves, it impacts the entire family. So imagine other relationships that are being hit because I'm so focused on keeping you alive, then I'm dying over here, you know, and those are hard conversations to have, but sometimes they need to happen.
1: It kind of, it makes me think everybody,
2: everybody has a bottom. Go ahead.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it it was just, it was making me think about what you were saying earlier about, you know, trusting your partner to take care of themselves and that your job isn't to fix them, but to be there to support them Uh while they're, dealing with you know what they're dealing with themselves that it it almost seems like it's kind of an extension of that it's like also not being like it's you can't not not only like do you not need to (laughs) fix them because i think sometimes people feel guilty like oh but i should but like that you can't actually that that's just not a thing you can do from from the outside
2: yes Mm. right absolutely you you can't you know um you can't force feed people recovery or well-being um, either they're going to swallow it whole and digest it, or they're going to they can choke by not wanting to deal with it and that's one of the things that I use I use a metaphor of choking and digesting mm. and sometimes people can get caught in their own you know their own stigma around being flawed and Shame. Shame is real big and can eat your lunch. And if you have mental, you know, mental differences or cognitive differences or emotional or substance abuse or personality, all of these things can eat you up if you're so over identifying with being flawed or having shame.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, I I want to do an entire episode on shame. Um mm-hmm. I've been doing a oh. workshop myself on, you know, on like healing shame for, you know, counselors and and coaches and therapists and stuff like that. And it's just like so <laughs> huge and so all-encompassing <laughs> and I feel like specifically in American culture we're so indoctrinated to like carry shame, but pretend that we're not ashamed. Um, and right. and right. I think just so many people are caught up in that push pull just all the time, and it just spills right. over into so many different arenas of life.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm getting I'm going to a training the next three days with Brene Brown, and mm. it's the um, it's, it's the Dare to Lead training, and a huge piece of her work is about how shame impacts vulnerability
0: yeah. and
2: that's one of the things is individuals do not want to get vulnerable and even say I'm scared that this is going on I can't control it I don't know what to do about it and just stating certain things like that is is what builds that shame resilience
1: mm-hmm.
2: and sitting down in in front of you know a polycule or a quad or, you know, just people who are in a dyad sitting down in front of them and saying, when's the last time you told your partner that you're scared? Hmm. scared of them leaving you, scared of not being who you think you should be within this relationship? When's the last time you said that? And that's another thing is that people don't want to admit those things. You know, even a support, I'm scared that I won't be able to do this or you're going to do this you know, it comes from everybody just naming it. That's a huge one. Just name what's going on.
0: Yeah. And I feel like I've seen this added level, I think, as there's more people who are, I guess, more, quote unquote, savvy to non-monogamy culture and polyamory culture and stuff like that, or people who've been doing it a long time, that there can be then this added layer of (laughs) well, I shouldn't be scared because I've read all the books and listened to all the podcasts Oof, and logic yeah, my way right. out of, you know, how love is so abundant. And it doesn't change the way I love my partner or how they love me. And then it's okay. And <laughs> I know I've definitely felt that personally in the past that it's like, I, yeah. I shouldn't feel scared. You know, this this fear should, mm-hmm. or this vulnerability shouldn't come up because I should know better. And I think I'm starting to see right. a little bit more of that, this kind of added layer to delving into those more vulnerable, sticky feelings. Right. Right.
2: Isn't that amazing how people who are monogamous don't have those same internal <laughs> dialogues? <lines? laughs> I've been non-monogamous since I was an infant. I shouldn't be. No, no. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that's that that holy grail mentality that there's one way to do this, one way to do mm-hmm. that. Yeah. If I just figure and out the right way,
1: good it'll good. never be hard again.
0: Right. Yep. Right. And then it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I want to dive into what I would argue was maybe on on the thread that I posted the the I guess the topic that came up the most um compared to the rest of these. And so I'm just going to read a couple examples. Um so someone asked, "How do I differentiate when my behavior stems from symptoms of my own mental, mental illness or past trauma?" that aggravates those illnesses? Or when is it me being a crappier controlling person who needs to step back? And I have another related question. Uh, How do I tell the difference between unmanaged mental illness and just bad behavior? I don't want to stigmatize mental illness. And I also need to figure out my own boundaries around others' behaviors that affect me negatively. Um, but sometimes it's hard to tell which end is up. And we got a lot of comments related to that of people wondering both about their own behavior and a partner's behavior, maybe a metamorph's behavior of how much of this can I chalk up to mental difference or mental health issues? How much of this can I chalk up to someone just kind of being crappy or behaving poorly?
2: Oh, Wow. That's a lesson that's, that's a nice dichotomy right there yeah yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and the thing is that that comes with time, you know, just like we build trust incrementally along with longer a relationship, we begin to see people's true selves the same way, and so having an understanding of what you're dealing with is really important. Do your own independent research, do your own reading, go to support groups, talk to people. That's when you become that, that learner. And once you become that learner, you're better able to see things because you have information. Um, And when people you can have quote unquote bad behavior and you can also have of a mental difference diagnosis or something of that effect that doesn't mean that one is feeding the other one
0: Hmm. and
2: so that's something also important to recognize that everything is tied to that now they did mention trauma and i'm going to put a pin in that one and come back to it yeah Yeah. Um, because trauma trauma responses are are very interesting um and so having an understanding of the individual talking to the individual and asking so i noticed this is this something that's a part of blank or is this something else i just want to call it and i want to name it because i can sit here and come up with my own assumptions and i don't want to assume mm. and then when they say oh this is this and it's because of this and then okay so they have identified the problem now they have to come up with their solution to it. And after a while, if you keep you keep pointing it out and you keep seeing the same thing, you may want to take stock and, hmm, maybe this is something more than their mental well being. Maybe this hmm. is something different. And that's kind of like that wait and see or that investigation that we do within relationships with anything. Um and so that's my best solution to that and then you have the trauma responses and typically those activating events I use the word activating because Mm -hmm. triggered is so watered down it's so overused and so misused but there's things that activate us you know and with those activating events there's certain responses you know fight flight freeze that can happen which can be very bizarre behavior For example, I like to use this um, um, analogy, you know, there's been a lot of shootings. I work a lot with uh, black queer people, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, there was a lot of shootings, you know, with cops and on, on black bodies. And so one of the things that I like to point out is that when you're in an activating situation like that and they say, get down on the ground, you're frozen. Mm -hmm. You, you don't know how to move or or how to maneuver with that. And people don't recognize that sometimes things are trauma response because there's this consistent attack on someone, Mm -hmm. you know, just being black. And then you're asking them to get down on the ground. They don't want to make a sudden move because you don't want to get shot, but yet you get shot anyway. You know, does that make sense?
0: yeah one hundred percent it's this is something that it's gonna sound weird to say, but it's near and dear to my heart because for myself like i you know I left a physically abusive relationship a few years ago and then, for the first time in my life, started experiencing like p t s d symptoms and mm-hmm. I, I never had in my entire life and it was my first time ever having to figure out how to deal with this or learn about this, and I really went down this big rabbit hole of learning about trauma responses and doing training and stuff like that. And it really is just this, I say the word amazing, not necessarily with a positive bent, but just almost like awe inspiring kind of what the body can do with, Mm -hmm. um, with a very, very little activation essentially, or, or like an event that would not seem activating to anybody else in the world, but to you, it gets you into that frozen up, locked up, trauma response. Right. And that's another right. one where I want to do a whole other episode talking about PTSD and trauma, because that's definitely something yeah. that I think more of us need to be talking about.
2: Yeah. And, you know, that also goes into attachment, you know, mm-hmm. and we talk about it within relationships. Um, attachment, it's, you know, there's disorganized attachment, there's anxious, there's avoidant, You know, there's that rescue attachment, all of these different types of attachment that comes from being insecure within your relationships or insecure within self or the environment. And that can also bring about behavior. I think attachment is something that is amazing to use within non-monogamous or polyamorous relationships, because how we attach to people dictates a whole lot about our anxiety our depression, our our moods, and all of that, the insecurity that we have and the lack of confidence within our relationships is also something to explore with mental well-being.
0: Yeah, so I I was only familiar with like avoidant attachment, like fearful avoidant attachment, um anxious attachment, secure attachment. You mentioned a couple others I wasn't familiar with. You mentioned the disorganized and I think one other.
1: Rescue attachment. And rescue. rescue.
0: Yeah, can you can I yeah. mean, can you give just kind of a brief like cliff notes version of of those two? Yeah.
2: Yeah, disorganizes when you have both the avoidant and the anxious and they're kind of operating in the same space. It's kind of like, mm. get away from me, but come towards me. Get away mm. from me and come towards me. Or you have that friend foe, you know, that friend, you know, either you're my enemy or I want to be around you, but I can't stand being around you. And it kind of creates that wibble wobble that people say, you know, they're giving me mixed messages. I don't know what to do, mm. you know, that that type of. Space that you're operating within is because you don't know what to do. The person who's in that particular attachment, Mm. they're they're scared, they are overwhelmed, but they love you and they want to be with you. Um, And then you have that that rescue attachment. That's the person who wants to go in and fix, you know, and they kind of get their sense of worth by fixing and taking care of, or you know, becoming indispensable in some type of way.
1: And
0: so that's that one. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. I can think of like a billion examples just just hearing about that. But yeah, no, <laughs> that, that's, that's that. the
1: one in my personal life that I've had to work very hard to stop doing the fixing. Rescuing? Yeah.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, see, because yeah. I I'm uh, very uh, relate to the time. disorganized one. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know. Honestly, I think I'm much more on the avoidant. On on the avoidance side of things, but that disorganized one, like that push pull and the back and forth and the hot and cold, it's it's like wow, like you can see that in so many places in so many relationships, yeah. it makes perfect sense. Right. Oh.
1: I wasn't gonna say it, but I thought so too. I was oh, like, oh yeah, I for sure.
0: <laughs> 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 okay, good. I guess it's good I said it first then.
1: Yeah. um <laughs> So, okay. All right. All right. I want to move us uh, to another topic here. I feel like this is one that we could just keep talking about for another two hours and do a whole other, you know, mini series on it or something. Um, But this next one is about basically ways to disclose mental health status or mental health differences or something. So again, I'm going to give you some examples of the way this question showed up. How do I disclose my own mental health status or trauma history to a potential partner? When should I disclose that? Um, And then relatedly, but sort of from the other side, is it okay to disclose my partner's mental health status to other partners? And then another (laughs) one is what one should look for or ask to vet whether a potential partner or partner's mental illness is going to be a red flag or kind of a disqualifier for an intimate relationship. You know, that kind of covered a broad range there, but maybe we can tackle the first two first and then move on to that one.
2: Yes. Yes. Disclosure. Yeah.
1: Um, Yeah. For a long time now, we've been fans of adamandeve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection
2: So disclosure, number one, I wouldn't disclose on other partners. I let that partner disclose for themselves. I just want to toss that out there first. Mm -hmm. Um, I gave this example. I I did a panel at um, Black Poly Pride, and we did a role play. And within the role play, I I played the person who was going to disclose. And I had been seeing this person for like six weeks, and we decided – OK, our, our vetting period, our consideration period, you know, using that, that kink terminology was around six weeks to, you know, two months out. And you see that it's probably going to go somewhere and you decided to disclose to the individual and, and speak in I statements, right? Disclosing can be as big or as little as you want it to be. Would I lead in with it going into a new relationship? Personally, I probably would not, but that's up to you. Mm -hmm. Um, But going into it when it's appropriate, timing, because sometimes we can overshare um, things about ourselves and it's kind of like it can be off-putting. Not that you have to keep it a secret, but there's parts of you, you got to make sure people can handle, you know, and they build their trust that they can handle yourself and all you are and giving that to them and so the example that i gave within the workshop is that you know we've been seeing each other for a little while and there's some things that i want to share about me because i want you to be informed i want you to have Mm -hmm. informed consent about what you're you know who you're going to get within this relationship I have been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. I have a psychiatrist. I take my medication and I have a therapist. I just want you to know that I'm taking care of myself.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: But I think it's important that you know that these aspects of me and I trust that you can honor and respect that I'm taking care of myself. Those types of conversations. Um, And I think it's important that when you're disclosing to let the person across from you know that you're taking care of your business and what you need to do. Did yeah. that answer your question?
1: No, I think that's great adding the piece. Cause I think that especially if it gets shared really early on that I have found that there can be this reaction of sort of panic of like, Oh gosh, like, does that mean I'm going to have to take care of you? Does that mean I'm going to have to like learn to be your therapist or those things? Cause I think we, are sort of taught that assumption that, you know, we end Mm -hmm. up sort of being the everything to our partner, including their therapist and their doctor and their personal trainer and, you know, whatever else. So I I like that, including that piece. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. With polyamory, we're like, everyone can't be my everything. Right. Right. So we, we kind of had that ingrained within us, you know, not, you can't be my everything. And that's absolutely correct. I don't want you to be my therapist or my psychiatrist. Mm. As a therapist, I have to say that all the time. I'm not your therapist. You don't (laughs) pay me. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I make this amount of money an hour yeah. <laughs> and I don't do dual relationships I'm right. like a therapist and I'm mm-hmm. not your mother. It was one or the other. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: can, can you also real quick, I wanted to clarify something. You talked about the like vetting period or you had another term for it that's from the kink world. And for our listeners who are not part of the kink scene uh, or who are new to it, uh, could you explain real quick what that means?
2: Oh, being under
1: consideration—that's the one. Yeah, um,
2: mm. yeah, I'm I'm a top, and so that means that I'm okay. I'm a dom. I'm I'm a fem dom. Mm-hmm. And so when someone wants when I'm someone wants to be a submissive, I call it being under consideration, which is the the interview stage mm. to where we figure out if our values, our wants, what we're needing, what our expectations are, our protocol, all of that is. Part of the discussion you know and for me the under consideration or the vetting stage which is you can use that interchangeably um is a long process like six months to nine months Um, Mm. but during that time this is when all that information will come forth and you know in the kink world dealing with that um dealing with mental differences and cognitive differences really plays into negotiation. And so
0: that's a whole
1: other episode. Right. Yeah. 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 So could we go to the, then the second or like that last question that was part of that, which was what should one look for or ask to vet whether a potential partner, uh, yeah. Whether a partner's mental illness or a potential partner's mental illness is a disqualifier or red flag or something for having an intimate relationship with them. And that's when you were like, whoa, whoa.
2: Yeah. Yeah. If they say that they don't believe in medication, you know, mm. not that everybody has to be on medication, but you know, there's, that's a strong statement of that, you know, having a mental difference is, you know, it's about neuro, neuro, neurochemistry, you know, and about how we fire in the brain somewhat. And so having a medication as part of it can sometimes be, be very necessary sometimes being on vitamins, you know, B12, vitamin D, folic, that can definitely deal with it and you can manage it that way. But having, if there is no level of intervention, that's a huge red flag. Mm -hmm. You know, there has to be some level of intervention going on or present, you know, from people have seasonal affective disorder. You know, right now I'm asking clients, so are you going to a tanning bed? Are you, you know, right. are, what are you, what are you doing to to take care of yourself? Because winter time is a struggle
1: mm-hmm. for
2: many, many clients because of just what's going on within the, the, the environment period, you yeah. know? And so this is a busy time in my office. Yeah. Um, but those are some of the questions like, uh, If you want to ask, you know, well, how many of your relationships ended because Mm. of something you're, you know, are you in other relationships right now? And how they talk about those relationships, just the questions that give you an idea of how things are being managed um, for them and how their perspective and how they see what's going on with them are some questions, right? And those are really valid questions to ask, very valid.
1: I feel like those are great questions to ask, even if you were dating monogamously of just like right. you, you know asking someone about how did your previous relationships end you know it's like like asking a job candidate why are you not at your previous job anymore Jeez. well and I, I mean that's you know seriously though that it's like if they go like oh well she was crazy and you know that it's like okay maybe okay. that's a red flag right. that, that you're actually yeah. the issue yeah. here right <laughs>
0: Yeah. So it seems like it boils yeah. down to just seeing if this person has an awareness of like how they how they need to care for themselves and how they need to manage what's going on. And that that like that right. channel around that is open. Yeah.
2: yeah. And Yeah. That's just a, a couple of questions that you can ask if you want to. And that's stuff that and please allow it to happen organically.
1: Uh, OK. <laughs> you know? So don't sit down at the interview <laughs> table.
2: No, let it happen organically over a course of conversation that's I can say anything about any of this you know it it doesn't have to be you know an interrogation, like you said, rapid fire questions, yeah things can just ease into conversations very naturally and if once if someone wants to disclose something to you, they'll disclose it naturally. you know um eventually things will come out, but just I encourage people just to let it happen organically.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I feel like it, Is that it, fair? it It does. It reminds me of the meme that I've seen floating around a, a, a couple of different places where it's just like, hey, can you tell me like all your traumas and baggage right now before we get into a relationship and you start projecting that shit onto <laughs> me, basically. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I that meme. Uh Yeah. So um, here's another recurring one that came up and uh, is basically a lot of people are asking about what if you have two people in a relationship who both have some mental differences, maybe both are neurodivergent, maybe both have certain mental illness or both have trauma or something like that. And the way that a lot of people phrased it is like, what if these things are incompatible? And so here's some examples some people gave. Uh, So, for example, you have one partner with a need for transparency due to anxiety and another partner with a need for total privacy due to trauma or something like that. Another example someone gave was, you know, one person needs to have super clear plans in order to feel safe and another person can't make super clear plans because of issues with executive functioning or things like that. Have you come across situations like that also?
2: All the time all the time it's and it is intention and that's all I can say when there's Hmm. something like that where there's typically when someone is in need of holding back it's around fear or when someone is in need of you know anxious and needing to know that's around fear and it's Hmm. around confidence and that's that attachment stuff that we talked about and trauma responses you know and i'm a, the person who wants to be private it's like someone has hurt them along the way to where that privacy was was trampled on or was used was against them. weapon yeah. Yeah, yeah it was used as a weapon or some, some level of gaslighting or something like that that's going on one of the things is to allow that safe container to be built is one um it's going to take, let me just put it, I'm trying to make this real simple. <laughs> it's going to take each person, because <laughs> I can go into a litany of things that yeah. can happen, uh-huh. but it's, it's, it's going to take each person? person being intentional and understanding what each person needs, yet not cutting themselves off at the needs, with themselves not getting what they need from that other person. There's going to be a level of reciprocity that has to happen. And incompatibility to me around, to me, incompatibil- incompatible means that it's not something that can be pushed through.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, it's just not going to mesh and it may not work. It's kind of putting a, a, um, a nail in the coffin. I can't think of anything better to say right now. Um, but I believe that there's certain things that are incompatible, um, but someone who has a trauma response and someone who has anxiety, I think that's something that can be worked through and time will tell on that one, but both people have to be patient and be able to give a little give and take Mm -hmm. in those particular situations. Um, and so that's a real difficult one to answer straightforward a plus b equals
1: c yeah
0: right it seems very context dependent dependent on the people involved because yeah it makes sense again in, in this scenario if it's the one person who needs transparency because of their anxiety and the other person who needs privacy because of their trauma that it sounds like you're saying that if both of us can figure out the give and take figure out what are the areas where we can push through this and kind of push the edge work through the you know work outside the comfort zone to find a new normal that works for both people then that's good but if it's if it's a situation where it's more of a black and white of a like, no, I I just can't compromise on needing total transparency, or no, I just can't compromise on needing complete privacy. That then maybe that's just straight up incompatible at the end of the day. That's why you're the writer,
1: and
0: you
2: can put
1: things.
2: On. <laughs> oh gosh, <laughs> you, you said that very well. Can I steal that?
0: Yeah, if you like, <laughs> if you like. <laughs> <laughs> Shucks. Yeah, okay, okay. This also brings up for me personally, I don't even I don't know if this counts as a mental difference thing or not. Um maybe this is something we should have covered in the scheduling episode Jace that we just recorded a little while ago, but something I bump up against, have bumped up against in my life. I see a lot of people talk about this, but um around the planning incompatibility that there is one person where it's like the way I organize my life is around Google calendar. I need to have things planned out. I need to know what's going on in a relationship with the person who's like, I don't know what's going on until an hour before I do it, (laughs) you know? And I can Mm -hmm. see that some of that could come down to mental difference stuff, you know, like this person mentioned in their example, someone who has an issue with executive functioning and, and maybe can't make plans ahead of time, but it seems like it also comes down to preference as well. Um, have you dealt with people who kind of have those same like differences around like planning and scheduling? Yes.
2: Um, and people like to call it type A, type um, mm-hmm. I like to call it being, you know, ambiguous and committed and, you mm-hmm. know, and mm-hmm. and the reason that I say it that way is that some people like to have that, you know, there's many things. So people feel pressure by schedule. They feel like they can't uphold a schedule. Um, Some people have issues around um, fear of missing out. You know, they don't want something better to come along. Um, You know, that FOMO stuff will eat you up all the time. Mm. Yeah. And so those are some of the things that can happen. And I don't know if it's um, any particular cognitive difference other than, I mean, this sounds also partly like personality. Yeah issues um because i'm trying to think cognitively what would that fall under that couldn't necessarily be like a mental well-being thing and right. so i'm trying to think i mean all i can think of is if if someone is in a depressive episode or a manic episode You know, with bipolar, bipolar or depression, you know, they're sad. They can't really come forth and make a commitment to anything, either because it's the racing and, and, you know, that sense of euphoria and they're not able to not able to pin them down. Or someone who's so depressed, they're not able to make a commitment because they're just trying to make it day by day. Those are the things that pop up into my mind. And I don't know if that's the question that people were. No, or the but, question that you had about yourself personally.
0: But I think that makes sense. That totally makes sense how that would apply here, for sure.
1: Yeah. So as we said, we could talk about this stuff just on and on for many episodes, but uh, we have reached the end for today. However, Ruby... Really? Ruby, I know, it just <laughs> flew by, right? So Ruby, you do... <laughs> So many things, and you organize so many things. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what you have going on and where they can find more of you, more of your work, uh, all the things that you do?
2: Um, You can find my work at blacksexgeek.net. I organize a conference called Polyballus Millennium. We're on our fifth year, and it's a conference that focuses on individual and non-monogamous relationships either experienced questioning or curious and we center folks that are um, non-binary trans or folks of color but we do not exclude anyone we like to laugh have a good time this upcoming one is july 10th through the 12th um we're going to have one of our speakers is tristan taramino we have ida mandalay who's going to be speaking we have um I always say this wrong. kimichi Cuddles. Oh, Wolf, who's Kimchi going to Cuddles. Speaking. Yes. All right. Yeah, Kimchi. Thank you. Please <laughs> <laughs> say that wrong. Please forgive me. I always say that wrong. Um, and so, um, she's going to be speaking. So, we have several speakers that are pretty awesome in the community that are coming out. Um, we also have Marla Stewart and she's with Sex Down South. So, all that mm. and also upcoming I'm collecting manuscripts I'm the special editor um, of a journal, Journal of uh, Black Sexuality and Relationships and there's a special edition on polyamory, the first mm. that's ever been done wow. and so if you want to submit a manuscript it's an academic journal please, I'm accepting them all you academic people out there on polyamory that's and race um, and I have a chapter of a book that just came out and i do relationship
0: coaching online and that's me so so you're a writer too you can't call me the writer (laughs) 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 i love to write (sighs) (laughs) wonderful wonderful yeah so many things my goodness and we'll also we'll be including links to all of those things in the write-ups and in our social media posts that people can find them easily
1: and they can find that all through your site (laughs) right
2: yes you can find it all through my website
1: absolutely all right. So Ruby is going to stick around for a little bit with us to do a bonus episode for our patrons. And in that, we are going to get Ruby's thoughts about how to evaluate whether a therapist or a counselor is right for you, which is another question that comes up a lot in discussions. Uh, so if you're a patron, stick around for that in a couple days. And if you're not, check it out at patreon.com slash multi We also want to hear your thoughts. What have your experiences been? Have you wrestled with any of these sorts of questions yourself? Have you found your experience to be different than what we talked about today? The best place that you can share your thoughts with other listeners is on this episode's discussion thread in our private Facebook group or Discord chat. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email us at info at Leave us a voicemail at 678-M-U-L-T-I-05. Or you can leave us a voice message on Facebook. <laughs> Multiamory is created and produced by Dedeker Winston, Emily Matlack, and me, Jace Lindgren. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanera. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistants are Rachel Schennewerk and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com.